Amen. If you will, please take your Bibles to John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter 3. You can tell a preacher doesn't study much when he uses John chapter 3. You know, it's kind of a famous chapter. But we won't be on John 3.16. I figure most of us know that one. We'll be towards the end of the chapter. Now, this month we begin our month of gratitude. If you've not been with us through the entire year, uh, our theme is Worthy of Him. And we have tried as a church to evaluate our ministry. Uh, We've also tried to evaluate our lives personally. and, And see if our walk truly is worthy of Him. The Bible says, walk worthy of Him. That's a high standard, is it not? The Lord of Lords, there's no flaws, no imperfections. He is, he is just so wonderful, and the Bible tells us that we are to walk worthy of that. And so we've tried looking personally, we've tried looking collectively as a ministry, and each month we've had a different emphasis. This month is worthy of Him and our gratitude. Of all people, in all places... We Americans should be more grateful than any. Man alive, we enjoy more material blessings than just about anybody. We have the greatest country in the world, and certainly we have the best Savior. And we should be so grateful. And so every Sunday night we'll be taking a look, and I'll be preaching in harmony with our theme, Worthy of Him and Our Gratitude. Uh, That is until Preacher gets better, which knowing Him, He'll probably... Just, you know, kind of grunt, grow his ribs back and be back in the pulpit next week. So until he gets back, that's the plan. And then Wednesday nights we're doing our study through the book of Nehemiah. And then each Sunday morning, it's kind of like a potluck. You get what I give you. All right? So amen. Praise the Lord. John chapter 3, verse number 22 this morning. The Bible says this. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near uh, to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast in prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Now, if I read this correctly, and the way I kind of interpret this is, they're coming to him, and they kind of tell John, they say, John, don't you know Jesus is cutting in on your business? I mean, heretofore, you've had a monopoly on the matter of baptism. You've been the only guy talking about it. But now Jesus and the rest of his disciples, they're doing what you're supposed to be doing. I believe they were trying to spark some contention between John the Baptist and Jesus. Verse number 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but, I, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase 
I want you all to read the next four words with me. Ready? Go. But I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. But he that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. And no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I pray this morning that you bless in a very special way. You know my feelings on this sermon. You know uh, my passion about this sermon. So Lord, I pray that you would somehow effectively allow me to communicate these truths this morning. May in the few brief moments we have do nothing but seek to glorify you with the sermon. I pray as a result of that, people will be encouraged, would be uplifted this morning. I ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. Did you know that the Christian life is not about you? It's not about us. It's about a wonderful Savior who deserves every bit of glory, every bit of honor, every bit of attention, every bit of commitment that we could possibly give Him. That is, in essence, the Christian life. If, if, it was, uh, if, if the Christian life was about us, it might be called the Shawnian life or, or, or the Johnian life. Or the Andrewian life, which that's just not comfortable to say. But it is the Christian life. Our life is to be lived for the purpose of Jesus Christ. I cannot necessarily recommend this movie, but as I read verse 30, I couldn't help but draw some parallels to it. There's a movie by the name of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Many of you probably have seen it. I have not, but I am very familiar with the plot. It kind of weirds me out, though, so I don't really care to watch it. See, this is the plot of the movie. And I really can't get past the first five minutes of the movie because my mind starts going into the medical problems with this. But you see, Benjamin is born in New Orleans, and when his parents go to pick him up from the hospital, he is an 80-year-old man. He's a full adult. He's grown. He's old. His appearance looks old. That's where I can't get past that. I don't really know how that works out. But the movie does have a purpose. And you see what the movie does is it chronicles Benjamin's life as he grows from full adult maturity. And he actually ages in reverse. So as everybody else in his life is getting older, he is getting younger. The movie chronicles uh, Benjamin and his life. And throughout his life, he falls in love. He marries. He has children. But you see, he's faced with very unique circumstances as the woman that he marries and falls in love with. She ages and he gets younger. The end of the movie, I suppose, as many people have told me, the reason for it is to teach us that we come into this world about the same way we go out. You can't take anything with you. You can't bring anything with you. Both ends of our life, it kind of juxtaposes the, the, the similarities yet the contrasting differences between an aged man and a newborn infant. 
You see, it's a unique movie. It's a strange movie. But as I read verse 30, my mind could not help but kind of compare the two. You see, verse 30 says this. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, that's not the natural progression of life. The natural progression of life is as we age, as we mature, we get more. You see, an older man is expected to have his finances in better care than maybe a younger man. He's had more time. He's had more uh, uh, time to earn money and, and, uh, and, and uh, get his finances in order. And so that's the natural progression of life. But in the Christian life... It's kind of a curious case. Because the more we mature, the more we realize it's not about us. Our goal is for growth and development in Christ. And you know what? That is an admirable goal. But unlike almost every other goal in your life, when you achieve this goal, you'll find you want no part of bragging or credit for it. This morning, I want to take a look at three truths that every growing Christian will realize. Number one, the first truth that every growing Christian will realize is this, that God is our supply of all things. Verse number 27, the Bible says, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from above. If you you were to go back just a couple chapters, though, You'll find these people coming out to meet a strange man, John the Baptist, out in the wilderness. And the Bible tells us a little bit about his oddities, if you will. He didn't have the nicest wardrobe. He didn't have the most uh, agreeable diet for some. He was a very unique man. But they come out, and, and the people that did come out to see him preach and see him speak, there was no doubt that God's hand was on him. They heard him speak. And you know what their first question was? Art thou Elias? Are you Elijah? Now, if you were a Jew, this would have to be one of the greatest compliments that could be received. This would be like me saying, Brother John, are you George Washington? (laughs) He's not, I can assure you. But this would have been a huge, huge compliment. I mean, you remember what Elijah did while he was on this earth? I'm talking about in in the face of some of the most wicked king and queen leaders in history, Elijah stood up unashamed of what he had to stand up for the Lord for. You see, remember, they, they, uh, a, a famine and a drought had been called in the land, and Elijah had called that. And then he challenges the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Do you all remember? He challenges them. He said, you know what? I, there's only one of me. There's 450 of you. You just bring them all out. Just, just we'll have a big powwow together. You know, this was uh, the exact opposite of ecclesiastical separation. This was everybody gathering. And they, they all gathered. And, and the goal was this. Who's ever God could bring down fire upon the altar by just praying to him, that God would be the true God. And so those 450 prophets of Baal, they got out there and, and they... They began to pray and they prayed repetitiously. And, and remember, you'll, you'll even recall, they were cutting themselves so that they might draw the attention of their God. Oh man, Elijah was a prototypical Christian. He was a bit sarcastic. Do you remember what Elijah was saying? He's over in the corner. Maybe your God is sleeping. And I can just, this is me reading the Bible, but he's over kind of giggling. <laughs> Maybe... 
per, perhaps he's on vacation. Maybe he's away for a while. Man, what a sarcastic Christian. Don't you love Christians? Amen. I love you guys. Y'all are awesome. But, but this is a great story because then the, it's Elijah's turn, right? I mean, this is, this is when all the insults, all the, the jokes that Elijah has made, this is where the rubber meets the road. You know, everybody talks a big talk until they actually got to walk it, you know? And Elijah sits there and he says, you know what, I'm not comfortable. I want to handicap this for y'all. This really wasn't fair before we entered into this. I'm going to handicap it for you. I want you to go get water. Now wait, there's a drought going on. And, and Elijah is asking for water to be poured on the altar so he can prove a point. And Elijah says, you go get some water and you just drench my altar. And I don't want to explain all of the physics and mechanics of fire making, but water and fire are enemies, okay? And Elijah says, you go get water and you just douse my altar. And then he does it again. And finally he begins to call on God. Oh, he doesn't have to call for hours. He doesn't have to cut himself. He just prays one simple prayer to God. Fire falls from heaven, consumes the altar. And that day God was, uh, received glory and God was victorious. And all those prophets of Baal had to sit there and shut their mouth because God is God. And Elijah proved it that day on Mount Carmel. Amen. Man, he was such a man of God. And in a Jew's mind, he was a patriarch. Of the faith. And now these people go out to John the Baptist and they say, John, are you Elijah? Well, thank you. <laughs> well, that's so sweet of you to say that. I mean, these people were convinced that John the Baptist's ministry was going to have such an impact that it was equal to that of Elijah, so much so that they were confusing him with him and saying, are you the great prophet Elijah? And I want you to see what John says, verse 27. <laughs> it says, a man can receive nothing except it be given from him from heaven. How easy it is to begin to take credit for something we really haven't done. Yeah, it's, it's somewhat, I don't want this to sound bad, but it's almost comical to me when people come up to me and say, Brother Andrew, what a great sermon. And I kind of want to just tell them, you realize this isn't my subject matter, right? I didn't write this book. If it's a great sermon, it's because it's from a great source. If, if I were to this morning go write a book and then preach a good sermon on my book, maybe then I would deserve credit. But the reality is if I wrote a good book, which is very unlikely, ask my wife and spell check. But if I wrote a good book and then I came and impressed you all with my speaking ability and my writing ability, maybe then, maybe it would be worth saying, Brother Andrew, good job. But every time I stand to preach, you understand... I can do nothing except God would give me the ability to do it. Oh, I've seen great men of God's voices just smitten for a while. And I don't know the reasons all the time, but I've seen people who used to be able to lift their voice like a trumpet only for moments lose their voice. What is a preacher without a voice? You see, 
I can do nothing apart from God. And that's exactly what Jesus told Pilate, wasn't it? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power to crucify you? Don't you realize that I have power to set you free? And Jesus looked at him and said, you wouldn't have any power except it was given from you from heaven. Christian, when we begin to grow in Christ, we will realize that everything that we have, every talent, every gift, every ability, is not by your own doing. And it was given to you for a purpose. That purpose certainly isn't to make the man more money. That purpose certainly isn't to bring more dollars to the bottom line. I'm sure this morning there are very talented salesmen, very good businessmen in this room. And man, I'm proud of you for that. But if you're a good salesman and a good businessman, you know what I believe? God has made you probably the best witness in this church. You could sell icicles to an Eskimo. You know what else you could do? Talk to someone about Jesus and never get tongue-tied. Whatever gift you have this morning, it was not given to you for the glorification of you. It was given to you for a purpose. And that purpose is to honor God with that talent. He is our supply of all things. And as we grow, we will realize that our life is to be lived out for the purpose of bringing Him honor. You see, every growing Christian will realize he is our supply of all things. I don't know what your talent is. I don't know what your gift is that God has given you. But I want you to not just look at your obvious ones, but maybe your obscure ones. You know, for David, it was just a sling. For Rahab, it was just a a, a scarlet thread. I, I don't know what yours is, but for the widow, it was just two mites. But you see, the Bible tells us in all things we are to give God glory. In all things we are to give Him honor. Truth is, we don't do that as we should. Are you honoring God with everything that He has given you? Because He has given you everything. A growing Christian will realize He is our supply of all things. Number two, He is our satisfaction in all situations. Verse number 29, see this if you will please. The Bible says... He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and feareth him, and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. As I mentioned earlier, as we read the passage, this group of people, John's disciples and, and the Pharisees had begun to debate. This debate was on purification. And if you happen to be here on Sunday night, uh, we spoke on purification. And what the Jews had done is they had taken ceremonial cleansing way too far. What was a law and what was built for their encouragement. And and really, uh, I would even say God gave it to them because God is God and He was wise. And He wanted them to clean up before they entered His presence. And so... This was law, but they took it way too far. What was given by God, they made a tradition of man. Now they had to wash their hands even when they went to the market. They had to wash their hands when they got back from maybe a, 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 when a table was built by a, Jew, a Gentile. They had to clean the table because it was not worthy for them to sit at. 
You see, and that wasn't God's law. That was their own mandated things they had made up. And so this argument breaks out between John's disciples and, and uh, the, the, the Pharisees. And, and they're arguing about purification. And I guess maybe John's disciples upset them a bit. Maybe, you ever get in an argument with somebody and they don't really like your point of view and kind of they get a little aggressive at things? And I think that's what happened. And so their argument starts over purification. And then they come to John and they totally flip subjects. It's like they're so mad, now they've got to spew their hatred out on everybody else. And so they come to John and they say, Don't you realize, John, that this whole baptism thing that you got, this, isn't, this, this was news a week ago. Now Jesus and his disciples are doing it. He's baptizing more than you. You're going to go out of business. And I really believe this was said for the purpose of making John angry at Jesus. And so now you have John at the face of these Pharisees and they're saying, your, your old hat, your ministry's washed up. Everything you've got is, you're, you, you might as well just close shop and go home. And John looks at them and he begins to use this illustration of a bride and bridegroom. And he says, I'm not the bridegroom. I am the friend of the bridegroom. Now, in Jewish culture, the, the friend of the bridegroom did far more than what maybe our best man would do now. I have been a best man in a wedding, and many of you know that as recently as Sunday night. I talked about that a little bit, but uh, I have been a best man in a wedding. For me, as far as I understand, the, the things that a best man would be encouraged to do now is maybe that best man would, would you know, get a, a range of bachelor party. And, and for me... When I am best man, my goal is to find the closest thing that we can catch, hunt, okay? Golf used to be it, but now it's pretty much just hunting or fishing. We're going to take a group of guys, we'll go hunting and fishing. You say, where are you going to eat? Probably McDonald's, because we're cheap, obviously. That's, I'm, so if I'm going to plan a bachelor party, that's what I'm going to do. And then I think the, the best man ought to take care of his guy on that day. I mean, he ought to, if the guy, if, if the groom needs something, he ought to be there for him. If he needs a Coke, man, go get him a Coke. If he needs his battery, you know, unplugged, unplug his battery from his pickup truck so he can't take off on his honeymoon. Whatever, but that's, that's kind of the things that I think that a, a best man would do. And then maybe some people would ask that best man to give a speech at the, at the rehearsal and just, or at the reception, just kind of tell everybody how good of a guy that you're now losing as a friend. Amen? Because that's exactly what's happening. She's taking him away, and I tell you what, she's getting a good one. That's kind of what you say. And that's, that's kind of what a best man would be required to do nowadays. But back then, especially in Eastern culture, the best man was essentially the planner of the wedding. He did far more than what we do now. He arranged the venue. He would have established all the guests that were coming. I mean, some of you brides that have been married recently, wouldn't it have been nice to just trust your groom's best man for that? I wonder how much pink would sell at those wedding shops if guys were getting to plan the wedding. So camouflage and, and gray, you know, that would be kind of our main colors now. And I... 
I couldn't imagine that, but in Eastern culture, that's what uh, they were to do. You see, the, the, bride, the friend of the bridegroom organized the wedding ceremony. He hosted and oversaw the reception. He even went as far, and some commentators believe this was the case, to arrange the honeymoon. Boy, can you imagine that today? Like, where do you want to go, babe? Well, I want to go to Hawaii. Well, I want to go to, you know, the Virgin Islands. Okay, best man, where do you want to send us? I don't know, is where is the, the rut going to be at that particular stage? Where are, what's, what's going to be in season? You see, if, if, if deer are in season in Oklahoma, let's send you to Oklahoma. I mean, that's the way we would think, right? Best men back in this day, friends of the bridegroom would have done far more than what we're accustomed to. And now they look at John and say, your ministry is over. And John says, I'm glad. I've been working, I've been laboring, but you realize I wasn't planning this ceremony for me. I wasn't the forerunner to myself. I came to prepare everyone for him. And if I take a back seat to him, you know what he says? Then my joy is fulfilled. Friend, there is no greater time in your life than when maybe you introduce someone to Christ and their relationship with Him takes a step away from you and closer to Him. How many people follow friends into church? Well, that's good. And you ought to bring your friends to church. But when they get to church, your prayer ought to be that they'd stop following you and come for Jesus the next week. He says, oh, my joy is fulfilled. My satisfaction is in Him And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus concerning you. The life that can find joy in representing Christ in every situation can find joy in the most repulsive of situations. When you represent the Lord Jesus Christ in every situation, even if your ministry is minuscule, you'll find joy because you are still representing our Lord. The growing Christian will realize that God is our supply of all things. The growing Christian will realize that He is our satisfaction in all situations. The growing Christian will realize that He is our source of all achievement. Verse number 30. The verse that draws my attention to this passage and arrests my focus is this. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's His show. I am privileged to be a part of it, but if He ever moves me out of it, it's His deal. That's what He says. I must decrease. And you say, but John, you're... Jesus, when He was talking about you, He said there's never been a greater prophet among men than you. And John says, well, I appreciate that compliment, but I'm nothing compared to Him. John chapter 1, He looks at everybody and says... I'm not even able to latch his shoes. This thing's all about him. Your life is to be lived for him. Live for God and you'll find happiness. Not only will you find happiness, you'll find a sense of achievement. when your life is bringing people to Christ. Now I have done a few wedding ceremonies. And let me just say, I'm terrible at them. You may not think so if you've been to one of them, but I have made a ton of mistakes. The first wedding I ever did, I believe it was for Cody Calk. 
I don't know if Cody's here this morning. It was Cody Calk's wedding. Went out to this beautiful little farm over here. Uh, uh, it's a pretty, pretty little place. And, and man, I was excited. I was there for Cody. You know, Cody was my running back in high school. So it's pretty cool for a quarterback to get to do his running back's wedding, you know. And, uh, and now we're friends, and it's great. I'm excited, man. Everything's good. Everybody's excited. And, uh, and we did the, done the reception the, or the rehearsal the night before, and, man, it went no problem. Everything's good. I've got this. I've got my little script here that Dad printed out for me from his Bible, amen. And uh, it's great. I've got it taped there to the page. I'm going to preach a sermon for it. It's, I've got this. Man, there is no problem here. And so uh, they come up. Man, Cody's coming up. Then his bride comes up. Everybody looks good. Everybody's just, man, they're all happy and excited. And I said, who gives this woman to be wed? Her mother and I. So she is given to Cody. They come up. And I said, let's pray. It's, it, I say something to the effect of, it is beneficial for us to ask the Lord's blessing as we enter into this very solemn service. I bow my head, we pray, and I get up and I, I say amen and I just start heading down the trail, man. I'm, I'm ripping face, you know what? I'm telling everybody what for, I'm telling them how to be married, I'm telling them how to live married, I'm telling them, man, if you had been there, your marriage would have been better, let me just say, because this was, I was laying it on thick. It's like Dr. Phil met Oprah, met some red-headed preacher, it was great. Okay, so this is Awesome. What I did not realize is I never told the congregation to sit down. (laughs) From the time that the bride entered the venue to the time that they kissed the bride, everyone stood up. You know what I thought? If I have to stand up, you have to stand up. Amen? Man, I just made a mistake. It's crazy. There's another time I was doing Corey Calk's wedding. I don't know why they asked me back the second time. This, I thought they'd have learned their lesson. Corey Calk, he asked me to do his wedding. And it was a good little venue. Now, it was a rainy day. So it kind of threw everybody off. But it was a beautiful venue. They had it decorated all nice. There they come. Everything's good. And I, I forgot to kind of inform Corey on the way that I do the ceremony. And at one point, I asked the, the groom... What token of love do you have for your wife? And, and generally, the answer is a ring. Okay. But if you've ever been in a wedding, you're not paying attention to anything the preacher's saying. You're just waiting for him to pause, and then you say, I do. You, you don't even know if he's talking to you. You just, you do. Okay? So, I, I can tell, you know, Corey's got that glazed over look, and... Uh, and, and, you know, they're just, oh, so happy with one another. Oh, they're getting married. It's great. And, and uh, they look at each other and I say, Corey, what token of love do you have for your wife? And you could tell, it was like the teacher just gave a pop quiz that someone did not prepare for. I did not tell him what to do. Now there's this really awkward pause in the ceremony. And he's like, am I the token or... <laughs> He had no clue what to say. And this was my fault. This poor Corey. It wasn't his fault. And eventually, about three seconds after this just blank gaze, says, 
a ring? Like question, like question mark at the end, a ring? And I realized I had messed up. I realized I was just, it was totally my fault. And so the only thing, I'm so not smart sometimes, I do this. Ding, 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 we have a winner. Man, what am I doing? Now Corey's embarrassed. Everybody in the wedding just laughing at, I don't know. They're probably laughing at me, I'm sure. This is, I just am terrible at these wedding ceremonies. I messed up. The other day, we came to Matt and Emily's wedding. It was a beautiful wedding. Matt and Emily, we're glad to see them. Well, we're glad to see that Emily's a good enough Christian to put up with Matt and, uh, I, I was not doing the wedding, but I came to the wedding. Preacher was doing the wedding. And, you know, you can see through, like, the little portholes of the windows, you can see, like, a frantic commotion about five minutes before the wedding occurs. Normally, you know, you're staged, ready, set, go. I mean, you're, you're there prepared. But everybody's, like, looking around frantically. When the wedding does begin... They come up and everything's fine. And preacher kind of makes a little joke and he says, you know, um, I lost the ring, but everything's fine now. And, and you know, I've heard preachers say that and, and just a joke. Preacher comes down after he performed the ceremony and he says, can you believe I lost that ring? <laughs> and I said, you're kidding. I said, No. I had it in my little binder on top of my pen, and we just lost it. Three minutes before the wedding, I opened the book. There are no rings. The reason they were frantically searching is because everybody was in every corner of our church building looking on the ground for this ring. Praise God, they found it. So I may have made a couple mistakes, but I don't know if my mistakes are as bad as losing the rings. I mean, I did not communicate what the token of love was. He lost the token of love. There is no proof that he loves her without the rings. I've made a lot of mistakes at weddings, but I have never made this one. You may now kiss the bride and the best man come up and push the groom out of the way and lay a lip lock on her that would rival any Hoover vacuum cleaner you ever did see. I've never made that mistake. Why, it's pretty obvious who the guests of honor are at a wedding. The bride and the groom. The bride in this passage is obviously representative of the church. Christ gave his life for the church and we are the bride of Christ. But the bridegroom is Jesus alone. And any time that we try to distract from glory that he should be receiving in this place, we are foolish. It is not our place to receive applause for he alone is worthy. It is not our place to draw attention to ourselves for what do we have that was not given to us by God. Every growing Christian will realize that he is the source of every achievement that we ever have. 
I find it humorous sometimes at the end of these football games, maybe at the end of a national championship game. I, I think of how much time these young men have spent trying to get to the level that they are. They've worked so many years. They've lifted so many weights. They've practiced so long. And, and certainly there was somebody there that helped them get their start. For me, in my football playing days, it was my dad. I remember my dad, we were out there and he packed this army duffel bag full of clothing and and he said, now you need to hit this bag and he taught me how to tackle the bag properly, how to put my shoulder into it, keep my head up, keep my head off to the side, put my head on the side of the ball so that I might knock the ball out. He taught me those things, it was my dad. My dad was at every game, I remember one game that was so cold, this was before Under Armour, this was before, you know, people cared about children, but this was cold. We're out there in our jerseys, and I was so freezing, I, I, he could tell I was so uncomfortable. He went to his, his toolbox, got a pair of welding gloves. Now remember, I'm only maybe eight years old at this time, and he goes and gets a full adult-sized welding glove out of his toolbox. He takes them, puts them on my hands, and duct tapes them around my wrist. And then I was still cold, so during halftime, while the coach is rallying the troops, my dad is a human blanket on top of me, laying on me to share body heat. Who was there for me when I grew up? Dad. You know who these young men probably learned to play football from? Most of them, their dads, I would say. And I find it so comical that when, a, when a, an announcer puts the microphone in these young men's face, is there anybody that you want to thank for, for, for helping you all these years? Man, I just want to say, I love you, Mom. I, what about Dad? Dad's the guy that taught you how to play. No, 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 but Mom was there to give me the snacks after the game. Paul put it this way. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. Henceforth, there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me in heaven. You understand, while football players may occasionally misplace who deserves the credit, if we get our credit giving here right, Jesus will get it right up there. There is no confusion for Christ is the one who will be delving out the awards in heaven. And Paul was looking forward to that award. He says, I've worked down here and I've tried living a life that brought glory to God. And I've tried living a life that put everybody to Jesus Christ. So one day when I stand before the great judge of every man, he's going to look at me and he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. A growing Christian will realize that a life lived for self is a life that was completely useless. Amen. A growing Christian will realize a life that was lived for the Savior is the only one that brings any value. How are you living your life? Who receives the glory each and every day from you? <laughs> 